the scripture reading today is Luke chapter 9, sorry, chapter 12, verse 49, through to chapter 13, verse 9. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they had suffered in this way, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower of Shiloh fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for years, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on it manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, church. Got a good one this morning. Um, I I know Alan mentioned it, but I'm I'm thankful for that word that Travis brought last week as well. That that call from one uh, from Colossians one uh, to see prayer as our first work. And that that shouldn't be an unfamiliar message to your ears by now. After last year, we we spent last year really dedicating. just praying, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Would you, would you make us a people who, uh, who see uh, prayer as not just one of the things that we do, but the most important thing that we do? I'm more convinced than ever before that that's um, what, what our, our main um, focus should be as the people of God. So if you're wondering, uh, 2024, what, uh, where, where we're going, what's next? Um, more, right? More, more. 
more Jesus, uh, more prayer, more of that. Um, everything else comes from that, right? Everything like mission, community, discipleship, everything that we do comes after or flows from prayer because as we learned uh, when we're abiding with Jesus, it's only then that we bear fruit, right? Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to learn last year was that, that really life uh, of prayer is based on God's word. Um, we, so we're, the goal isn't just to come to God with our thoughts and our desires, although he, he wants to, us to come with those. Uh, but the, 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 the foundation of prayer is calling upon the Lord to do what he's promised to do, right? Um, to, to, to pray God's word, to pray God's promises. Um, and so that means we must be a people of God's word. Um, we, we must know what God's revealed about himself, what God has revealed about his plans in his word. So that's why every Sunday we, uh, we open up the Bible um, and, and study it and preach it and sit in it. Um, it's not just an arbitrary thing we do, right? It's, it's so that we can know God, so we can be shaped by his word, so we can know what he said, we can know what his promises are, and then therefore be part of the unfolding of his plans through prayer. Um, and so... Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 12. Back into Luke's gospel, um, this is the longest book in the New Testament. It's taken us a while uh, to get through. We started early 2022. Uh, we've taken a couple breaks here and there, but we're getting there. Um, uh, this morning, we're, we're really just kind of dipping our toe back into the water a little bit. We're going to be in uh, Luke for about five weeks um, and then we, we have like a Lent series planned, and that will take us uh, obviously up to Easter. After Easter, we'll, we will hunker back down into Luke and try to make some, some good headway, um, some good progress. Let me pray one more time. And Father, we need you. We thank you that you uh, allow us to, to know you and see you. Um, by sending us your son. Um, Jesus, we thank you for um, those things that we've sang about already. Um, this is all for you. It's all from you. It's all about you. It's all to you. Um, would you show us that in a fresh way this morning? Uh, may we see Jesus. Holy Spirit, teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, because it's been since August, since we've been in Luke, let me just remind you a couple of things really quickly. The main theme of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is the promised Savior sent by God to deliver humanity. Uh, the, the key verse that kind of captures what his gospel is about is Luke 19, verse 10, where Jesus, speaking of himself, he says, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. Um, so what let's put it this way, what's, what is, what's the main goal of Luke's gospel, right? What, what is he trying to show us? What's he trying to teach us? What do we learn by reading it? Uh, do we learn life lessons, how to navigate this life? Um, a little bit. Uh, does, it, does it teach us ethics, how to be moral people, how to, how to live righteously, a little bit? Does it teach us about ourselves, right, about, about humanity, about the human heart? Uh, in some ways, it, it does a lot of that. And does it teach us something deeper, though? Does it, does it teach us how we are to live as God's people? 
right? There's a lot of talk of kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. So is Luke teaching us about kingdom living, right? How, how are we to live as disciples of Jesus? It definitely does that. Um, remember, we're in this, this section of his gospel where Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's, he, he's, he's dead set to the cross. And all, as they're journeying from Galilee downwards toward Jerusalem, he's, he is teaching his disciples, here's what it means to follow me. A lot, lot of discipleship lessons, definitely. Um, but is that the main goal of Luke's gospel? No. Right, discipleship, human heart, ethics, those are all secondary lessons to Luke's main objective. And his main objective is simply to show us Jesus. Right, that the main goal is to show us a person. Um, here's who Jesus is. Um, sounds kind of rudimentary, right? Sounds obvious. Um, but listen, the, the central goal of this community is to pursue Jesus. Right, to, to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to share Jesus. Jesus is, is, the, is who defines this community. The defining characteristic of this church is that we are in Christ. Right? And, and so, um, it, it, listen, if, if Jesus is who he claims to be, right, if, if he is who Luke tells us he is, then there's nothing more important than knowing and understanding who Jesus is and responding appropriately, right? I'll say that one more time. That's the kind of the thesis of this morning. If Jesus is who he says he is, then there's nothing more important in your life than knowing and understanding him and responding to him. And that means we must see Jesus, right? We must see the full picture of Jesus, we must hear everything that he says, see everything that he does, observe him from, from every angle that his word gives us of him. We must see the full picture of Jesus's, because if we don't, then there are devastating consequences. Unless you see the full picture and fully receive who Jesus is, you're in a dangerous place. Um, because here's the thing, though, is our, our culture is kind of okay with Jesus, right? As long as it's not the full picture of Jesus. Here's some things you, you may have heard about Jesus. He's a sage, right? He's, he's profoundly wise. Or Jesus is a religious genius. Jesus, he was a social revolutionary. Jesus was a wise teacher or a deeply religious man. Jesus, he teaches us about love. Right? He teaches us about peace. He teaches us about caring for those in need. And listen, is Jesus those things? All of them. Um, he, 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 those, but, but those are just uh, kind of portraits that tell us uh, part of who he is. Th those are different angles of Jesus. We must see the full picture. Let me, let me give you an illustration uh, by showing you some illustrations, okay? Um, on the screen uh, is a portrait, uh, uh, a drawing from Leonardo da Vinci. Ever heard of him? He's, he's got game. He's pretty good. Um, now, da Vinci's style, his signature style, is actually uh, precision and realism. He's realistic in his paintings, but he also practiced the art of sketch, and he kept multiple sketchbooks. And so this is uh, a sketching of a woman called Isabella Dest. 
Um, some experts suggest that, that she may have been a preliminary study that influenced the world-famous Mona Lisa. So put that on the screen. So there's the Mona Lisa. Um, you can see similarities, right, in the way her hands are placed, um, in her kind of body positioning, even in the way her dress kind of sits. Um, uh, once you see the Mona Lisa, though, right, and w once you see uh, da Vinci's magnus opus, right, the most famous painting in the world, it's not until you see that, you know, critics say there's something about the look in her eyes, right? There's some, something about the mysterious expression on her face. Something about the background, even the landscape. Her posture is a masterpiece. And the sketching is really good, right? Uh, that, that sketching is hanging in the Louvre. Um, I don't, I'd love to, to, to be able to even sketch like that. But it's not until we see the full masterpiece, right, and all of its beauty, and all of its color, and all of the detail that we truly begin to see and understand who or what the artist is trying to show us. And let me show you another one that's maybe a little bit more straightforward. This is from uh, the sketchbook of Peter Paul Rubens. He's a Flemish artist from the 1500s. I wish I could draw a lion like that, you know? It's a lion. My lions are like a dandelion with a smile on it. Um, uh, Amazing, very impressive. But it's not until you see the, the full masterpiece of Daniel in the lion's den that you begin to see and you begin to understand and you begin to appreciate the masterpiece. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? We, we cannot, we mustn't settle for an incomplete sketching of Jesus. Right? We must see the full picture, the, the masterpiece, the reality of who Jesus is and all of his truth and all that he said, and all that he did, his complete message. Um, in, in this case, it's not that you'll simply miss out on a beautiful picture, right? You'll miss out on everlasting life with him. We must see the full Jesus. But here's the thing about the full picture of Jesus, is not everyone loves it. Uh, in fact, Jesus says some pretty shocking and offensive things, as we see today, um, Luke 19.10, when he said, hey, here's why I've come, to seek and save the lost, uh, that's not the only time that Jesus tells us why he's come. Um, another one is John 10, uh, where he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Um, Mark 10.45, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We love those sayings of Jesus, right? Love, man, Jesus coming to give life and life abundant. God coming in the flesh to serve us, those are incredible things. We all love those. But what about Luke 12, 49 here? There's another reason that Jesus gives for his coming. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Or verse 51, where he says, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. Excuse me? <laughs> uh, maybe we misheard you there, Jesus. Why did you come? And he would say, no, I, you heard me correctly. I've come to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Let's stick with the life-abundant giving Jesus, right? Um, let's, let's stick with servant-hearted Jesus, with seeking and saving Jesus. Give me that Jesus. 
But listen, we, we cannot settle with the sketching, with the incomplete picture. We must, we must hear Jesus when he says, I've come to be the great divider of humanity. I've come to cast fire on the earth. You see, it's here where we begin to see the full picture of Jesus. It's here that we actually begin to understand why the crowds were happy to kill this man, right? A Jesus who, who simply went around saying wise, witty sayings would not have been threatening enough to be crucified. A Jesus who simply was a religious guru, who, who, who merely tried to help people with their relationship with God, would not have been threatening enough to be executed on a cross. Here we begin to understand why they wanted to get rid of him. This man whose teachings were offensive enough for even the most religious people to want to kill him. And if, we're, if you're paying attention, if you're listening close enough, even his other reasons for coming um, have a bit of a, a backhanded kind of thing. Like, there's, they're, they're offensive as well. He's come to seek and save the lost. That's amazing until you're, um, oh, but you're t- saying I'm lost, right? I remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus is dining with the sinners, and he says, those who are, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Love that. Until you realize, oh, but you're calling me sick, <laughs> right? Are you calling me lost? Are you calling me the unrighteous, lost sinner? And he would say lovingly, yes, and I've come to find you. I've come to heal you. I've come to offer you forgiveness. And, and that's what we've, we, we've kind of, we've, we have been celebrating over Advent, right? The gospel is only good news if we're willing to admit and see the terrible, hopeless, dark situation that we are in, right? The, the gospel is, is only so glorious because of the soul sickness that we are born with, because of our desperate need of a savior, of someone to cleanse us and redeem us. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. Um, if you, if you, can remember back to the end of August, we were making our way through Luke chapter 12 and even 11 and 10 and 9, um, where Jesus was, he's been talking to his disciples, he's been talking to this larger crowd um, about life in his kingdom. Um, and he, he says, this is what it means to be a disciple. Um, and he said, hey, this kingdom, it's not one of fear. It's one of uh, trusting the Father to give you what we need. Cool. Um, he says it's not one of anxiety, but rather trusting the Holy Spirit to help. It's not one of covetousness and gaining earthly treasures, but rather storing up treasures in heaven. It's not one of greed, but of generosity. This is the kingdom. And then in, remember chapter 12, where we left off from verses 35 to 48, he, he's pointing his disciples forward He's looking ahead to his second coming, and he gives these parables of when the master returns, and he wants to find the the servants of his household ready and waiting for him, uh, faithfully stewarding this household. And and look at verse 37. It's the most incredible verse. It says, when the master does come, and he finds these faithful stewards of his household, the master will dress himself for service and, 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 and put his servants at the table, and he will serve them. Like it's, an, it's what a beautiful picture of eternal rest. The, the, this picture of those, uh, this, this gift for those who, who have stayed faithful, who are ready and watching for the master's return. 
what an amazing kingdom to be part of. Like, don't you want that? But listen, here from verse 49, he's not done. He wants to give us the full picture. And in some ways, there's a couple different uh, planes that we're kind of, this shows us. There's an aspect where he's, this is a series of warnings, right? For, for those who would enter this kingdom, yes, you have a father who, who will provide and care for you. Uh, you need not be anxious and fearful. You can remain faithful by my grace, but there's things that you must be ready for, right? Life in the kingdom will not always be easy. It will not be relaxing all the time. It'll be costly and difficult. So there's that aspect of, of here's some warnings for those who will be in this kingdom, but, but these, it also paints this picture for the world of the reality of the darkness that we are born into, the, the truth of our, our, our desperate and dire situation, and the necessity to respond to Jesus. So let's listen to Jesus. Get the full picture here. Things get serious. Uh, first section, verses 30, uh, 49 to 53. In this section, we see that Jesus uh, says he's come not only to bring salvation, but also to become the great divider of humanity, as some people choose to follow him and some choose to reject him. Uh, the fire that he's come to cast on earth in verse 49, um, he's, probably, he's not referring only to this final judgment, uh, this 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 refining fire in a sense, but also this, this refining fire of division between believers and unbelievers, okay? There's, there's not just this, 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 this uh, fire to come. There's also this context of uh, separation in our earthly relationships, earthly relational strife in the meantime, this earthly sense. Um, uh, you, you get that from the, the context that, that uh, from what he says uh, in the following verses. Hold on for a few more verses, and you, you do see that he does have a concern for final judgment as well, for, for uh, not just an earthly separation, but an eternal separation between God's people destined for eternity with him and, and sinners who, who do not respond to his offer of grace and forgiveness and who will therefore be separated from forever. But here the, at the start, the focus is more on earthly relational strife. Um, context is everything for verse 51, right? Obviously, in some sense, he, he brings peace. This is the name he will be given from Isaiah 9, the Prince of Peace, right? Peace is the eternal hope for those who turn to him. Of his kingdom, there will be an everlasting righteousness and peace. But, but in another sense, in this context, he says he comes not for peace but to divide. You, get, you begin to understand what, remember old man Simeon back in chapter, 12, back chapter 2? Simeon, who, who holds the baby Jesus, and he prophesies over him. And what does he say to Mary? He says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Right? The, the signpost was there. Right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, this child will divide. This child will offend many and save many. He, he will force you to decide. There will be no middle ground with Jesus. He forces us to decide if, he, if we will be with him or against him. And here Jesus says, as some choose to follow him and others choose to reject him, even households will be divided. 
In, in verse 53, uh, he basically gives all the options, right? Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law. His point is not to name all the possible. He's saying no relationship is off limits. Over the next few chapters, you'll, you'll see Jesus, he speaks more and more about the costliness of following him and making Jesus king of your life, allegiance to Jesus alone, you must be willing to lose everything. In fact, he's saying true and lasting peace is, is not, it does not come from earthly relationships. It comes from a heavenly relationship. And don't get trapped in our cultural context, right? Um, we still live in a fairly religious society, right? In some ways, it's not that costly to follow Jesus in Northern Ireland, right? Um, I want to say that with sensitivity because some of us have had families who reject us. Um, I have friendships that, that aren't the same anymore. Um, but expand your understanding here. Imagine you were born in a place like North Korea, a place like Afghanistan or Somalia, where, where to, a choice to follow Jesus could actually cost you everything. It could cost you total abandonment of your community, of your family, and here Jesus is giving that fuller picture of what, a, of what a, a disciple looks like. He says, yes, you need not fear because you have a father in heaven who's caring and providing for you. Yes, you have a future inheritance that is glorious and secure. But here in this lifetime, you must be prepared to lose everything for my sake. It's hard, isn't it? Our culture loves the Jesus who dines with sinners. Our, our culture loves the, the Jesus who brings in people from the margins, right? And is that who he is? Absolutely. But here Jesus says, I've also come to divide. Because with Jesus, there's no neutrality. He forces us to side. Making him king of your life is the most critical decision you'll ever make. And then in verses 54 to 56, he, he presses the crowd even harder. He, like he wants them to waken up. So in verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Here's a map of, of Israel. It's a pretty simple map. You kind of understand what Jesus is saying here, though. Um, to the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. So, so he's literally saying, like when you see clouds rising up from the sea, and they make their way inland, and they, they condense as they, they, they meet those mountains in the north of Palestine, you hear you know that rain is on the way. And, and then from the south, what's in the south is desert. And so wind blowing up from the desert would, would bring scorching heat. D pretty, you don't need a weather app to, to step outside and you're going to understand. Um, but Jesus isn't talking about weather here. He's pointing out their spiritual emptiness. They, they, would in, they could interpret these natural signs, but their spiritual emptiness of the hypocrisy blinded them to understanding the signs announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus' life and his ministry and his teaching. Right? It's, it's a warning, isn't it? Wake up! 
right? Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm right here. I'm announcing the kingdom. I'm ushering it in. Look at the signs and wonders and how I'm proving it all. Don't miss out. Don't, don't miss out. And in verse 57, he continues to contextualize his point for the crowd, and he puts it in this real practical way. He says, why do you, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. So this illustration, he he paints this picture of uh, someone who owes a debt, and and the accuser taking the debtor to court, and he says something actually just really practical, Something that really makes sense. He says, listen, you'll be wise to settle that debt before you go to court, lest you stand before the judge and he puts you in prison where you'll stay until you pay every last penny you owe. It's getting serious here, right? Um, Oftentimes that illustration, it's taken to, to refer to personal relationships. And Jesus does, he uses that same illustration in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And there he does have a a reference to kind of personal relationships, but the way he uses it in this context, in between these these verses that we're looking at, it actually makes much more sense to to understand that he's referring to a debt before God. He's saying something about our human condition, that we, we are all born into sin. Every single one of us, since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, we are all the same. Right? Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we all owe the same debt because of our sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That, that's the punishment that our sin deserves before a holy God is death. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he's come to offer us what Paul says is the free gift of God. Right? The, the free gift of Ephesians 2, eternal life in him. That's the good news. The bad news, terrible news. Good news, he's come to settle that debt for you. And Jesus is saying, don't wait until the last judgment to come. It will be too late. Don't don't wait to settle that debt before you're standing before the judge. It'll be too late. Come today, right? Come to me now. And if that wasn't not plain enough to understand, Jesus then shifts, and he just gets really blunt. He begins to speak, uh, not in illustrations, but, but really straight and simple in the next section. In chapter 13, 1 to 5, new chapter, but same discussion. And the crowd, they, they bring up these two tragic events, these two incidents that, that everyone was familiar with. Um, they, these in, they're, they're not recorded elsewhere in Scripture. We don't know a lot about the details of these events, but we, you get the gist that they're tragic. Um, that, 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 that everyone knows about them and, and they're kind of terrible news headlines. The first one was this incident where apparently uh, Pilate put, put, uh, put a group of people to death as they were trying to offer sacrifices, mingling their blood with their sacrifices. And Jesus, he uses this event to, to make an important point about the human condition, about the, the universality of sin he says, do you, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners 
than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And he answers the question for them. He says, of course not. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he makes the same point about another event when this tower fell and killed 18 people. Are these tragedies due to people being worse sinners than others? Of course not. Jesus says, you're all in the same position, sinners, and you all have the same destination to to perish unless you repent. Unless, right? Unless is the key word here. It's terrible news, unless. Unless is where grace is found. Right? Unless is where the good news is found. He's being pretty offensive here. You're all going to perish, right? You all have the same final destination, separation from God, eternal prison, death, unless, unless you repent. You see, there's a way to escape the perishing, that there's a way to have your debt paid, and Jesus will say, there's actually one way, and it's me. This this is why Jesus has come to earth, right? He's on a rescue mission. He's come to seek and save the lost. He's come to to pay the debt for those who have no hope of paying it themselves, which is all of us. He's saying you're all in that same position. Listen, the Bible doesn't teach that that hell is this, this place where God sends really bad people. It's the destination of all of us unless we repent and place our faith in Jesus as our only Savior. Right? Do, do you get? Do you see the, the kindness and the darkness here? It's, it's out of his kindness. It's out of his love that he's giving these strong warnings. Jesus, he loves you enough to offend you. He loves you enough to tell you the truth. It's out of his grace he's calling us to repentance. Only a God of love who wants to save you would be so kind to speak this way. Because we are lost without him. We are unable to pay our debt, and so he comes to offer you a way to have your account settled. You see, the, the good and, and terrible news, straight from the mouth of servant-hearted Jesus, straight from the mouth of dining with sinners, caring, loving Jesus, he says, you will all likewise perish unless you repent. Repentance is key. And so in the last section, uh, verses 6 to 9, Jesus expounds on true repentance. And he does so in his favorite way by telling a parable. Verse 6. And he told this parable A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the, vin- to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, the vine dresser, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and, and put on manure. What's he doing? He's, he's tending to it. He's giving it the things that it needs to, to possibly grow. Give it another year. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. The... the He's definitely saying something specific about the nation of Israel here. Okay, any, anytime there's imagery of a vineyard, it's a dead giveaway in Scripture that we should have in mind uh, Israel. 
Uh, but there's a general truth for us all here as well. What did he just say? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, well, repentance is key. If, if repentance is needed, what does that look like? What, what does it mean to repent? There, there are two kinds of repentance. Um, let's, let's use some theological words. Uh, the first repentance is called attrition. And that's a repentance that's motivated by a fear of punishment. It's this repentance that's driven by a fear to be rescued from punishment. And it's, it's, it's repentance of a child when, they, when you catch their hand in the cookie, cookie jar before, before dinner time, right? I'm sorry, uh, don't punish me. And that kind of repentance, it never leads to salvation. True repentance is called contrition. This is a repentance where our hearts are broken because of our sin. We're, we're awakened to the fact that we have grievously offended God and our sorrow is deep, our sorrow is real. It's this repentance that, 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 that throws ourselves at the feet of Jesus and, and worships him because of his kindness toward a sinner who deserves punishment, not forgiveness. His, his kindness leads us to true repentance. Psalm 51, it's on the screen, says, talks about this. Says, Psalmist says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. What's he saying there? There's, there's nothing I can do to earn God's forgiveness. But then the, the psalmist says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Broken and contrite heart. This is true repentance. This broken spirit that, that leads us to turning. Right? You see, when, when, our, when our eyes are open to the depths of our depravity, and yet the grace of, of Jesus, the, because of the grace that Jesus offers us, our hearts are, are broken and sorrowful and yet full of joyful repentance a wallowing in the, in, the, in the terrible news that we exist in, but a joyful turning to his offer of grace. What good news. And in Jesus' parable, he actually tells us, if, okay, there's, there's two types of repentance. How, how do you tell which is which? And he, he tells us, you can tell if repentance is genuine or not. What's the marker? What's the proof of genuine repentance? It's fruit. Right, throughout his teaching, Jesus is concerned that his people bear fruit, chiefly the fruit of repentance. And he uses this analogy of a fig tree. Here's a picture of a fig tree for you non-horticulturalists out there. Um, I didn't know what a fig tree looked like. A lot of foliage, that, that means leafy. It's a very leafy tree. Um, and, which means that you can't, from a distance, you can't really tell if it's bearing fruit. You must come close. Right? And so the owner comes close to the tree to see if it's bearing fruit. It must bear fruit, revealing true faith, true repentance. If not, it will perish, just like Jesus has been talking about. It's not teaching salvation by works. The um, Bible's clear. What <laughs> Ali just read this morning, didn't tell her to read that. The Holy Spirit did. That we are saved by faith alone. 
Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works. Right? The great reformer Luther, he was, he was, he, he, I will die on salvation by faith alone. But he was quick to say, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Right? True faith, that always manifests itself in the fruit of repentance, in the fruit of good works. Right? The good works are not what justify us, but if they're not there, that's evidence that there's no real faith. The presence of fruit is absolutely necessary to be assured of a reality of your conversion. What's he looking for? A changed life. So repentance in the, in the Old Testament is marked by that word, turn. A changed life, a life that is, that, that is slowly being transformed more into the likeness of Jesus by the Spirit. That's the, that's the f- proof, that's the fruit of genuine repentance, of real faith. And notice, here's the warning part of the message. In the picture, in the parable, he finds no fruit. And he orders it to be cut down. But the vine dresser steps in, he says, give it, an, give it another year. Once you give it a little bit more time, let me, let me tend to it a little bit longer. You see, it's, in the parable, there's, there's three things at least that it's telling us, right? Firstly, it's showing us the, the seriousness of genuine repentance, of faith in Jesus, a response to Jesus is needed. Unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Fruit is uh, 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 genuine, genuine repentance uh, marked by the evidence of fruit in your life is needed. It's the first thing it shows us. The second thing it shows us is his patience. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He, he's patiently waiting for you to respond. But the third thing it, it shows us is that his patience does not last forever. Do you see how he's using the parable to amplify what he said in the previous section? That tragedy will strike us all. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. And so now is the time to respond. Right? You can't assume another year of patience. You don't know if that tower has fallen on you. You can't, you can't assume another year of long suffering. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of, of turning to Jesus. Just as we close, look, at, look back to the, the start, verse 49 and 50 in chapter 12. Jesus says some, some serious stuff here. He says some offensive things, um, offensive enough to get him killed, but he's, he's, he's dead set on that. He loves you, and he also gives you the glorious gospel. You get, in, in these two verses, you get the dark reality of our sinful condition as well as the good news. Now, Jesus says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. Division, even judgment is on the way. Offensive message. But then there, and there's a couple different ways we can... The second part of that is hard to understand what he's saying. The, the, the ESV, I don't like the way it renders it. The NIV is better. I came to cast fire on the earth. 
and how I wish it were already kindled. What's he saying there? It doesn't sound like Jesus. But So there's two ways to interpret that. Either he's saying that he's anticipating this cleansing fire. Right? I wish the Father would send the fire of judgment on earth that he's been holding back, and how I wish he would do it quickly. That's one way to, to, to interpret that, and there's, there's, a, there's a, some good theological uh, groundwork to say that's maybe what he means, and his holiness, and his, his desire for the world to be pure again. There's a second way to interpret what he's saying there, and that's that Jesus knew that the judgment of God was coming, and he simply wanted to get it over with. His heart is breaking. His, his heart is, is, is longing for this renewal. And I think that captures better of what he's saying because of what he then says in the next sentence where he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's, what baptism, right? He's, Jesus has been baptized already. We, we, we saw him be baptized by John in the Jordan River. He's not... He's not speaking of a water baptism here. What's he speaking of there? There's a fire that's coming. He's speaking of this baptism, not of water, but a baptism of fire, the, the fire of divine judgment. He's pointing us to the cross. He, he knows what's ahead of him. This moment where the fire of God's wrath would not merely touch Jesus, would not just singe his hair, but that all of God's wrath that should be poured out on his people because of their sins is poured out on Jesus instead. This wouldn't be just a mere display of God's displeasure. It would be real judgment. The fullness of hell itself was coming upon him. And Jesus says, may it be done. There's a great distress there. But why? Why? Because this is why he's come. Right? Right? to receive the punishment himself, to, to pay the wages of, of your sin himself. Does Jesus say some incredibly offensive things about fire and division and hell in this text? Absolutely. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. He's willing to do that, right? Because of our sin, we are in a terrible, hopeless situation, but then listen to Jesus when he says, I've come to take your place. I, I, I've come to stand in your place and nothing will get in my way. Nothing will stop me. Not even these feelings of great distress. Not even, not even those, 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 those sweating blood droplets in the garden. Nothing will get in my way until it is finished. This is why I've come. Hear that offer of grace hear that the most amazing news you could ever receive is Jesus, he comes into our terrible situation in order to cry on the cross, in your place, it is finished. It's finished. What's finished? The perfect final sacrifice. It is complete. The final sacrifice for your sins. May today be the day of repentance for you. Would you stand with me? And we'll pray.
And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us by your Holy Spirit uh, through men, writing down your words for us, and finally and fully in your Son, Jesus. We thank you for sending us your only Son to save us, to do what we could never do, to, to, to pay the penalty, the debt that we could never pay. What good news, Lord. What glorious news. Lord, I pray for those who, who have never even considered that message. First time hearing, Lord, that, wow, Jesus says some pretty, pretty harsh things about me. Lord, I, I pray that they would see the love in his message. Only a God who loves and wants to save is willing to tell you the truth. Lord, I pray for those who are close, Lord, who, who've, who've been considering this for some time. May today be the day where they place their faith in you, Jesus. The day where they are step into you and are secure in you forever. And it doesn't matter what, what tower falls. It doesn't matter what comes our way because you have paid our debt. Lord, I pray for those who are in you. I pray for uh, the fruit of repentance in our lives. I pray for those sleepy Christians, Lord. Um, Spirit, would you awaken your people? Even this morning, Lord, would you, would you awaken in us a fresh understanding of what you've done for us, a fresh response to your grace your goodness. May we be people who, who bear your fruit because we're in Jesus. We're abiding in Jesus where the things of this world are just not satisfying to us any longer. We must have Jesus. We must seek you. Would you do that in us, Lord? Lord, I pray for those uh, nominal Christians. Um, by that I mean those who have, who have been in this game for a while, um, but it's not real. And would you save, Lord? We thank you for your kindness and your patience. You're bidding those who are weary, those who are without an answer to come. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.